This is Movies, a podcast about the act of cinema. And with me today is Hans. Hans, that, why would you choose that? I mean, this is for patrons only. Why would you choose that background? Because it's uh, from, it's related to the what we're going to talk about right now. Good acting, good scripts, you know, good movies, bad movies. Bad movies. That's going to be its own new podcast. Yeah, you forgot about that. You, you, were, you were telling me you forgot about this one, right? So slip your mind. It's not a good top 10. For those who are only listening to the audio right now, he has a background on Skype of the tax collector starring Shia LaBeouf directed by David Ayer. Are you trying to look like Shia LaBeouf right now? Are you trying to like fashion your face? In that? Yeah, it's not no, working. It's not, it's not working. <laughs> he looks more Mexican than me. It was very upsetting. This is, this is probably like the last real high profile instance of a uh, brown face in a movie. Right. They say he like Italian or something. I don't know. I don't know what they say. No, but he puts on like the 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 cholo gangbanger yep. cadence with his voice. So I, I don't know. The tax collector. Uh, uh, spoilers for the future of this show. Uh, that is the worst movie of 2020 for, for me. <laughs> for my list, I've seen a lot of bad movies this year. This is absolutely far and away the worst movie I've seen from a competent director. So is that your pick one? Is that your number one? Or is that not even on your top 10? Oh, well, hold on. No, we're not doing the best movies of 2020. That's not this episode. That's that's the next episode. Oops. Oops. Made a big yep. mistake there. <laughs> See, after I confirmed with you, it's going to be the best movies in, watched in 20... I said this three times. I still started off the wrong way. We're talking about the best movies we watched during lockdown in 2020, which was uh, at, at probably the all-time peak for media consumption among people. It's because you're stuck indoors. Nobody's really producing anything new that is of quality, of scripted quality. The TV shows, uh, TV late night hosts are doing their, their shows on Zoom, on Skype. Everybody's trying to make their own green screen background. It looks pathetic. It looks like the local news anchor. Awful. Yep. So we're going to be talking about older movies. And I, I, how many films have you approximately seen this year, Hans? Oh, 20-ish, I think. 20 to 30, maybe. Uh, there was a, a period of time where I would just either listen to podcasts or just watch series. So there was a, a time where I didn't watch any movie, pero... Pedro, I just got a message on Spanish. Pedro, what happens? Pedro See messages? what happens? I just, I just got a text message in Spanish, and I'm just like, I'm not gonna reply, but the Spanish is still stuck in my head. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, because of the podcast, uh, I ended up watching way more movies than I guess I would, I wouldn't have if, uh, if we didn't do retrospectives. You know? Yes. Yeah. We would. I mean, there were some retrospectives where we had to watch ten movies just for the episode this year. I mean, between that and doing Civic TV, where we watched a new movie every single week. Yeah, it, it, it was a very advantageous time for consuming older media. Yeah, I, I tried to keep a list. Now, I'm definitely missing some. And this does not apply to movies that I had seen previously and rewatched, which I'm sure there were plenty of those. Uh, but for older films, not from 2020 that I watched this year, there were 169 of those and from oh shit mo movies okay. that i did watch from 2020 uh 49 wow okay see i don't have a list so it was me racking my brain today trying to remember movies from this year and also movies that i saw 
this yeah, year because but, you're a normal yeah. person you don't have to catalog things compulsively after you want and rate them rate and review which is uh i i actually hate letterbox but i like to keep it just for like memory purposes for this show really right yeah well that helped me a lot because i would have not remembered half of the movies that i'm going to mention here now just because you know we watch so much shit that a lot of it is really bad and <laughs> and not memorable. Uh, I I decided to cobble so, together. So we're we doing best. So yes. Are we just doing best this time? We're doing right. best watched in 2020, and we'll save the top films of 2020 and the worst films of 2020 for the next episode. Okay. All right. So you can you can start off with your number ten for films watched. In, actually, how about this? How about this? How about this? Let's do. I don't know if you have any of these because your list is going to be you know, your overall list is significantly shorter than mine. But uh, do you have any notable mentions that didn't make the cut that you watched this year and you found either extremely entertaining or impacted you creatively in some way? You took something away from it where you were impressed? No, nothing? No, this year was very depressing when it comes to at least new things. Now we're talking about, you know, just what we saw in general. So, I do have 10 that I saw that I had either not seen in a long time uh, or not seen at all. Uh, and I, I found that a couple of them I thought I had seen before, but I had not. So that was that was cool. That was a cool surprise. But uh, it's definitely yeah, a shorter list than, than yours. Uh, so uh, I'll just start with, uh, which is a, a movie that we saw for Civic TV, which was Altered States. Yeah. That was one that I thought I had seen before, but I had just seen scenes of it, and I ended up liking way more than than I thought I would. That's one of those movies for me where it's been on the TV from start to finish, and I absorbed nothing of it. Right? I didn't really pay attention to anything. Right. And then you sit down and you watch it, and you're like, this is actually a really great film. Uh, so something like yeah. that is uh, creatively interesting in its visual style, and I enjoyed that. That was probably the first like movie where... I feel like everybody was on the same page and enjoying it probably because we were quieter right, right, than right. usual during the movie, which means we were paying attention to it. It wasn't a blood, blood for Dracula situation yeah. where somebody was chiming in bored yeah. every six minutes. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's definitely a good pick. Uh, one for me. So I checked out a lot of, you might be familiar with this guy. A lot of the body of work of Alan Clark, who's a English filmmaker who died, I think in the early nineties or late eighties, mostly did short films, mostly did, not pl like plays, but it, it kind of like, I, I, I don't know how I would categorize them. Something like Made in Britain with Tim Roth, which is not labeled as a movie, but it feels like a movie, but it feels more like a stagey performance, you know? Um, okay. And he, he also did the original Elephant, which Gus Van Sant made an unauthorized remake of and stole the title. And it's just a bunch of tracking shots followed by people dying over and over. Gus Van Sant made the school shooting rendition of that. And all these really great 40-minute short films. There's one with Gary Oldman. The, the Oh, The Firm. That one is fantastic as well. Great filmmaker. So this is a guy who I discovered this year through uh, just a clip that Ben Lenato from Fun Church wound up posting. And I thought this was very eerie, very peculiar. What is this, the origin of this? Right. I found that. And I just went on a binge and watched all of his stuff in like a day. And he's fantastic. I also checked out a lot of the early works of Bong Joon-ho, including uh, his movie Mother. And uh, 
right. forgot to add this to the list. So I actually watched 170 films. Uh, what is it? I think it's like uh, Sleeping Dogs Don't Bark or uh, something along those lines. His first movie, which is kind of like a goofy mystery film with a guy who kills people's dogs, throws them off roofs and does all sorts of bad things for whatever reason. That was an interesting one. Uh-huh. Also got big into John Cassavetes this year. For a long time, I had kind of been ignoring John Cassavetes because I tried to watch The Killing of a Chinese Bookie when I was 20 years old back in 2010. And if you're 20 years old no. and trying to watch a movie that's supposed to be a gangster film, a highly stylized gangster film, and then you watch a John Cassavetes film, you're going to be very bored. You're going to fall asleep. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's yeah. not easily accessible to somebody who has a certain type of palette for, and especially if they're expecting one thing and then get another. So John Cassavetes is another filmmaker like Alan Clark, much more so though, that, uh, left a, a significant impact on me this year in checking out his body of work because I marathoned a lot of them. I watched a lot and one is in the top 10, uh, but opening night, killing of a Chinese bookie, a woman under the influence, many Moscow's shadows. These are not movies that will be in my top 10. Um, also the long goodbye mm-hmm. starring Elliot Gould is a terrific film from Robert Altman. Tremendous style to that. Wait, which one's your, which, which one's your pick though? The bookie, Chinese bookie? No, 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 no. I did not name it. I, I gave all the ones that were not oh, in the okay. top 10. Uh, the Long Goodbye is a, all right. is a great uh, take on the Philip Marlowe character in Los Angeles. It's long. It's just going on for a little I'm just, I, get, I have 170 movies. <laughs> yeah, you've watched like fucking 100. And, I'm over here like. You have four films. Yeah, when I said 30, when I said 30, I was like, man, that seems to be high. And you're like, I've seen 106. It's just like, all right, never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> Long Goodbye is a terrific rendition of the Philip Marlowe character from Robert Altman. Fear City. Fear City is actually a movie that's probably better in uh, in theory than in pra- practice with a lot of the soundtrack and the, the actors that are involved in the visual style of the movie. That is the lost episode of movies, by the way. We did a live episode on Fear City that has just gone to time. Oh, yeah. Uh, the the yeah. pledge. Sean Penn directed this movie, starring Jack Nicholson. Really disturbing, great film with a fantastic, probably Jack Nicholson's last really dynamic performance. I think he's great in About Schmidt, but the pledge is another level. Uh, the Keep, which is not really a good movie, but it's uh, it's it's an interesting schlocky, but not schlocky art piece. I'll give that credit. Uh, anyway, those are all my notable mentions. How about you start off the list with number 10? Well, my my number 10 was Altered State. Oh, all right. Yeah. Oh, my my <laughs> That's mistake. Why I, I thought you were going on for a little. Oh. A little long. So it was like, I just said number 10 like that. I got and you, you lost just, in my own speaking. Was, Sorry yeah. about that. All right. My, my number yeah. 10 is Kamikaze 89, starring Rainer Werner. Fastbinder and directed by Wolf Grimm, which some people think is not the real director. They think that Fastbinder actually took over this movie because he is the star. He's a very notable German director. Uh, it's his last movie that he appeared in, Fastbinder. Came out in 1982. And it is a it, it it's it it feels like it's parroting the immediate future that we're about to be in where it's like, there's no more crime. Everything's is surveilled. The police force isn't really up to much anymore. Uh, so they're staging murders. 
and you have Fassbender as a detective in a leopard skin jacket, and um, he's he's investigating these things, and the corporations are involved, and TV is very stupid. Uh, it's all like very dumb game shows, and it, it just feels so present to right now. And I found this on two. Where's it from? Uh, it's from Germany. It's a German film. Oh, but it's recent. No, no, no. It's, no. Like it's, it's from 1982. Oh, okay. It's from 1982. It's like, um, it's like, well, what if, I don't know. I, I, I won't even really put it in like modern political terms because I, I, I don't want to sound silly, but uh, it's a great film. It is full of all sorts of character. And it was great to watch a movie like this right before we got into filming on our own like mystery film. And it informed many of my creative choices uh with that so definitely check out kamikaze 89 i think it's free on tubi that's how i discovered it i think it just started auto playing out of the blue one day uh there's a cool trailer that i think alamo draft house released of it maybe about five ten years ago that is on youtube and i think it will sell anyone on at least giving it a shot so kamikaze 89 is my number 10 okay cool uh, my nine, uh, which is another that we saw. Most of these actually are from episodes that. So you're ranking we civic made. TV uh, episodes. No, 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 no. This was not from. There's no two good civic TV <laughs> movies. Uh, <laughs> uh, Maniac. Maniac was one that surprised me uh, a lot because I I don't remember seeing it. If I had seen it before, I don't remember if I said that I had, but I, I can't remember if I had seen it before. Uh, I saw it for the episode, and uh, I was surprised by how raw and and dirty it was, and uh, and and how much of a creep the main character was. Uh, in something that you don't really see that much anymore, where everyone has to be pretty. Like you do see independent movies here and there having a, a, a ugly lead character or antihero or whatever that this this guy is, um, and. Uh, it surprised me how how violent it was without really showing you much of the violence, um, and uh, especially in contrast with that remake that uh, Elijah Wood did, uh, um, it just made it yeah it made it made it even better I guess uh, when we were recording that and and I was I was pleasantly surprised I I always thought it was it was like a dirty old movie but uh, I what's his name Joe Joe uh, fuck I forgot his Spinello. name the, the main character. Yes, Spinelli. Yeah, Joe Spinelli uh, was amazing in it, and uh, I loved his performance in this. Uh, so it was definitely a, a pleasant surprise uh, for that episode, and it made my list of best ones for this year. This, I mean, for you know, what would you think if they had remade Maniac, but with like Philip Seymour Hoffman as, as Maniac? That's the name of the character. That would have worked a lot better. Yeah, yeah. it would have worked a lot better because he has that that uh weakness in him that that ability to play that creepy slash what loser character that we saw on most things that he <laughs> that he acted in uh we saw it in happiness right he plays a creep in that yeah. and then boogie nights uh and countless others so i uh, that that would have worked a lot better mostly because of elijah wood just not being uh uh real threat i guess like he never really feels like someone that you would be scared of it's elijah wood's uh, personality uh, as much as his build i think he's still the kid from yeah. flipper and the good son you know 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Still Frodo. Yep. He's, those eyes are still there, so it's difficult to believe him as this character, especially when you have Joe Spinell, who's so imposing physically. And, I mean, rest in peace, but difficult to look at, too, <laughs> you know, especially in that role. Yeah. So that adds an extra layer that this remake doesn't have. Uh, so definitely would be to just check out that original one. Uh, make sure that it's not like a 4K or anything like that, because that would maybe not... I don't think it works for that type of movie. Same like we were talking about the other day with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where I don't want to see an extra sharp version of it. It's, it's, it's meant to be seen like dirty and and uh, maybe not pixelated, but at least, you know, don't not not the highest definition you can get. Exactly. Uh, one for me that comes in at number nine is a movie that I actually, well, not this one, but the sequel, I wanted to see in the theater just abruptly because it was having a, uh, there was a revival screening for Police Story and Police Story 2 at the Brattle Theater, which is a, a great revival theater in Boston. I think they're uh, suffering some financial hardship right now as a result of the lockdowns. They've been trying to do uh, digital screenings, but good luck with that. Good luck when you have Amazon Prime playing. This. I, I get it. I, I get you got to try to do something, but <laughs> that's an uphill battle that I don't think can be won. And it's very unfortunate. Okay. So uh, I, I tried to persuade my girlfriend to go see Police Story 2 with me. She didn't want to do that. Uh, cut to four months later, it pops up on the Criterion app. So I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give this movie a shot. Jackie Chan directed it. Uh, I, I, the trailer looks interesting enough. The fight choreography... You know, it's all impressive. Uh, the first police story is number nine for me simply because of the sheer effort in that film and the coordination of all of Jackie Chan's stunts and his ability to be the leading man and the director and also pull off everything he does physically, which cannot be easy. And learning more about the backstory of that and how they they filmed that movie in Hong Kong and, and completed it by essentially doing, uh, we're talking about bad taste right before we started recording something Peter Jackson did with that movie. Bad taste is literally just like pick up and film whenever he could. So it wasn't a traditional film shoot where it's like, all right, we got 40 days to get this movie wrapped. It was more like, well, this is a passion project. There's not really a film industry here. We're just going to do what we can when we can. And it might take seven hours to get this mall stunt. Correct. Where we're going to burst through the ceiling and crash down and the glass is going to break and you're going to get kicked in the face and nobody's going to get right. <laughs> and yeah, but so much can go wrong. And yet it comes out an extremely enjoyable film. And uh, yeah, it was just one of the most pleasant movie watching experiences that I think I had this year uh, discovering these two films, but especially that first police story, I think is amazing. I don't think I've ever seen it. Um I'm I'm not very familiar with his work before Rush Hour, I guess. It's kind of embarrassing to say. Uh, but it's definitely one that I'll I'll check out. What do you think are his best Japanese um speaking, I guess? He's Chinese man. Sorry. It's it's okay. I'm Chinese too, so I can I can get away with saying that. What what do you think is his best Thailandese, no, uh, Chinese spoken speaking movie. Uh, these, I think these are actually, I'm not, look, I'm, I'm okay. not extremely well versed on Jackie Chan police story. Like uh, if you, if you have not checked out police story one and two or any of Jackie Chan's films that he directed, these two in particular feel like a more perfected Edgar Wright 
with the like the the editing choices right. and um just the just the the comedy style of the physicality uh with him doing the martial arts and the action i think it's a perfect blend of that and you can definitely see that edgar wright is somebody who was inspired by that as a director okay all right sounds good uh my number eight it's one that i probably should have seen a long time ago because everything i'm going to change my thing this ah. everything in it it's like what i like in a movie uh especially when you're thinking of 80s cheesy 80s you know kind of sci-fi-ish kind of horror-ish uh with uh inventive gore uh and uh a very creative uh storyline too with uh you know people that have this power and people that can stop the power that they have and and the the retrospective that we did on uh this was Cronenberg, right? We yeah. didn't we didn't the do one. On, that was we didn't do one on Cronenberg yet, but maybe down the road. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I just decided to watch all these movies, <laughs> uh, and I forgot. Yes, I think uh, so. Because I I, I I I do have some on my on, on my list here, just like watched, and uh, this is uh, definitely one that I that I rewatched since you know the time I saw it, which was uh, about a month ago, and. Uh, it just has everything that you want for this type of movie uh, made in this period of time. And tonally is great. Like it's, it's not really funny and it's, but it, it is dramatic and like uh, the right ways. And it, it has enough graphic stuff to keep you interested uh, in what the story or where the story is taking you. Uh, so this was a, I, I don't want to say a pleasant surprise because I've seen a lot of Cronenberg and, and most of the things that I've seen, I like, uh, but I didn't think I was going to enjoy this one as much as I, as I did. Uh, scanners is i don't think i've watched scanners in quite a while that's one that i would have to uh, revisit before i can form a legitimate opinion on it but something i i've struggled with uh with cronenberg's earlier films is they they're the more amateur nature to them where he doesn't have like a full budget just yet that was something that i don't know i just couldn't penetrate when i was 20 21 years old whereas videodrome i thought was was maybe his style from that period crystallized and then evolved with the fly, uh, which are two films that I thoroughly enjoy. And also dead ringers is a pretty good movie with Jeremy, Jeremy irons from 1987. I think it might've been a very good flick. I don't think I've seen that. Uh, My number eight is Tetsuo, the iron man, which was uh, part of Joe Bob Briggs's lineup. I know uh, he did a version of that movie and the version of that movie that I watched on the last driving was not the version of the movie that I had watched previously this year, because apparently there are three different cuts of this movie. There's a one hour cut, which is what I watched. It was about an hour and six minutes. And then there's an hour and 30 minute cut, which involves so much more. That's not really featured in that. It it was uh, very peculiar, but uh, this, this movie has some of the most kinetic, fast paced, interesting editing. And um, uh, just, cool like machinery uh uh i don't want to say like cyberpunk but it's got that that vibe to it uh and the use of black and white is is extremely well executed with this movie tetsuo the iron man yeah what is it about because i've seen i've seen images of it but i i I don't think i've ever i i used to confuse it with ichi the killer for whatever reason i guess because i'm racist 
but I but like what is it what is this about because visually it looks great I just don't have the faintest idea as to what the, the story, story is. doesn't make any sense so I, what I'm gonna do is I because I'm oh, okay. I can't really <laughs> I will sum it up and then it won't make any sense at all uh, but okay. I will read the synopsis here it still won't make sense but it'll make maybe more more complete sense uh, a metal fetishist driven mad by the maggots wriggling in the wound uh, that he's made to embed metal into his flesh runs out into the night and is accidentally run down by a Japanese businessman and his girlfriend. The pair dispose of the corpse in hopes of quietly moving on with their lives. However, the businessman soon finds that he is now plagued by a vicious curse that transforms his flesh into iron and he becomes Tetsuo the Iron Man. I, oh, your internet froze. You look just very confused, quiet for almost a solid 20 seconds there. Just it worked. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, that didn't make any sense. That was that just was that a synopsis? Was just that run on sentence? Yes, yes, it was. It, it was. But I mean, that's oh. that's what happens in the movie. So the uh, creepy metal guy. I guess I'll have to. I guess I'll have to watch. No, yes, because yeah, it's it's got it's got a fantastic use of uh, a fantastic composition of um, um, picture in relation to music. The, the music of it is everything and drives the editing choices, which is uh, kind of similar to Requiem for a Dream. We were talking about that when we were doing the Batman and Robin episode about how that feels like a 90 minute long music video. Tetsuo the Iron Man is similar in that nature. And it's a very easy watch. There's not much dialogue. There's not much story. It's all about the visuals. Okay. Uh, let's see. Number seven. Uh it's uh, a movie that I remember was very hyped when it came out because of the subject matter, which was kind of odd or not really something that you would base a horror movie around. Uh, no, have you ever saw Good Night, Mommy? Uh, that was with the twin uh, boys, right? And that's a French movie? Yes. It's, I think it's Dutch, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, it's, it's foreign. Uh, but... It's uh, about these two twins that have a German uh, that whose mom comes back home from surgery. Uh, but then they start noticing that she might not be their mom. So the whole movie is about this lady who's got a bandaged up face, uh, who's acting a little bit weird, uh, trying to convince her children that it is really her. Uh, and the more that time goes by, like the kids start believing her less and less to the point where they like tie her down and like start torturing her so that she tells the truth and whatever. So it's very, it, it, it's very European, I guess you would say when it comes to like that type of subject matter and like the, the, how graphic they're able to, to uh, make their movies. Uh, and it, it's very unsettling. It's very cold. Uh, the tone of it is very much uh you know, that type of European um, architecture that is very pale, very, very black and white, very, it doesn't feel like a warm home that you want to, you know, spend an afternoon in. Uh, and uh, it was very unsettling and it surprised me a lot. Uh, not because of, uh, you know, not having any hype, because I remember when it came out or it was going to come out on this side of the world, there was a lot of, of hype to it. But just because it, it completely went by and I, I didn't really see many people talking about it. And uh, to the point where it just slipped 
through my radar and didn't see it until now. I think this movie is from 2017. No, 2015, 2016. Uh, so uh, it's one of those movies like Starry Eyes that came out, had initial hype, and then that 14. Yeah, 2014. Yeah, yeah. That got diffused almost immediately after the release. And nobody really talks about it anymore. But it is, I, re, I do recall it being a solid horror film. Did you think that the twist at the end kind of spoils the rest of the movie? Do you want to do you want to talk about what the twist is? Yeah, it's look, it's a movie. It exists in the world. I don't believe in spoilers existing for a six year old film. So yeah, well, okay, you can go ahead. So just at this point, just, everybody who is hung up on seeing Good Night Goodbye, Mo- Mommy is uh, 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 has had the opportunity to jump out of this podcast or skip ahead fifteen seconds. So if you if you haven't by now, right? I'm sorry. So tell me tell me what you think about the ending. Uh, so the ending turns out to be that it is indeed the boy's mother and there are no boys it is a boy who is seeing his dead burnt up brother uh or his spirit or he's mentally ill or whatever and he's committing little atrocities with him so uh not the worst execution of the oh he's it's all in his head twist not not at all um but right i thought that removed a lot of the creepiness that was built up with the mom character it, I think it it ruins the rewatchability definitely because uh, you're more aware of every time that she purposely ignores the other kid uh, because uh, their the interaction between the kids is very natural, very normal. You don't see anything weird there, but the mom is always kind of mean to one of them or like always trying to ignore the other one or like saying, you know, here's one lunch, you know, for just you or whatever. So. It's it's confusing at first because we don't know why she's mad at him, right? But then when the reveal comes out, it's kind of like, okay, that makes a little bit of sense. It would definitely ruin that rewatch, but it didn't ruin my enjoyment of it. Uh I thought they 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 uh they did it well. Uh and I was it's not it's not what I was expecting the movie to go, I guess. Uh so when that happened, I was like, Oh, okay, that that it worked for me. Yeah. I yes. think for me it, it, like the whole idea of the character that we've seen on screen being the partner to the protagonist being in their head is so played out in American film. At this point, we've seen it in fight club. We've seen it. We've seen it everywhere. Like that, that became a very popular trope in the odds because of fight club. So Mm -hmm. in this instance, I actually think it's probably one of the better, better uses of that. But um, I don't know. I I still feel mixed about it as a result of the context around that film. Not very creative, yeah. I guess just the the strength of the other elements of the movie may may not. I think uh, here's here's what I'll give the movie credit for is creating a great atmosphere with right with very minimal uh, requirements. So my number seven is a film from Alan J. Pecula with the star Warren Beatty. It is the Parallax View. Seems like every movie I watched got announced for Criterion four months later. Uh, this is a very, very, uh, a film that would probably be considered controversial if made today, probably considered fringe today, but you have to keep in mind, this came out in 1974. So that's a a little over 10 years after Kennedy was assassinated. And that was the, uh, last successful assassination of a president, right? We had, uh, we had Reagan in the eighties. Somebody tried to impress Jodie Foster because they saw a taxi dro- driver one too many times. Thought he was going to do some some good in the world by doing that. Failed. 
couldn't take out an old man, a 74 year old man, couldn't take him down. Um, <laughs> so this is about a senator who was assassinated. And Warren Beatty plays a reporter who bears witness to this assassination. And he starts digging into it. He's going to write a, a story on it. He's just investigating. And suspiciously, all the witnesses to this assassination wind up dying in random natural cause related mostly ways. And his investigation leads him back to a corporation which outsources political assassins to people to take out important figures. So you, you wind up finding out that this, this corporation is essentially doing uh, like MK ultra style brainwashing on people to take out right. political figures. Sounds very modern. Yes. Very. Yeah. But it's not uh, something all. like this and Kamikaze 89 back to back. And you will feel like, Whoa, this is, this is probably the world I'm living in. Uh, Warren Beatty is brainwashed by this corporation because he's, 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 you know, he's going undercover, right? So he's going to go in there and see what it's all about. And they have a very effective, eerie uh, brainwashing montage that is probably the best part of the movie. And it is simple. It's well executed. And it made me really love this film, The Parallax View. Unfortunately for Warren Beatty's character, he winds up succumbing to the brainwashing. So the investigation is a failure, but he is a, a great assassin. So uh, it's a it's a good movie. It's a very good movie. It's on Amazon Prime and it's going into the Criterion Collection later this year. So definitely check that out. The Parallax View. This was this was actually recommended to me by Ashton Tate of Fun Church. So Fun Church has had quite the influence on my movie watching this year. Right. What Star Eighty and Star Eighty? I love Star Eighty. Uh, was that this year though? You did. Yes, I I really like Star Eighty. I, I think. Shit. I think so. I remember I re I recorded that in the, my in my kitchen, and I think, yeah. Uh oh. Uh oh. So I well. You didn't add that. Uh, oh, oh no. Uh, oh no. What am I gonna do? We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna start all over. No. Uh, Star Eighty. I don't think was this year. Was it? It's not. Let me see. Movies podcast, Star 80, that was on. Why is this not loading? Star. It doesn't matter. Listen, Star 80 would not be in my top 10. It would probably be a notable mention. I, I enjoyed uh, many elements of Star 80 and Eric Roberts' performance. I thought that was a very great movie. It's all right. I... We know how you felt about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, moving on. I saw this movie that's, I, I believe it's Australia or New Zealand. Wake and Fright? Confuse those two. No. Oh. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a horror movie. Uh, <clears throat> it's called Housebound. It's from 2014. Oh, okay. Um, and it it's, uh, it's like a comedy. I, I guess more than horror, it's kind of suspenseful. It's about this, this problem child who's not a child. She's like 20-something. Uh, who is being forced to live into his her uh, I guess grandmother's house or mom I think it's her mom's house um, that's in the country like separated from everything she's like this this problem child in the city uh, and then when she gets to her mom's house she realizes that there's something creepy going on in the house 
like some type of uh, either ghost or like creature that lives in the house and that's been living there for a while. So the, the whole thing revolves around that. Uh, it's very funny. It has a lot of uh, similarities with the type of humor that Edgar Wright uses in Shaun of the Dead, where that mix of comedy and horror work really well. Uh, and then the the twist at the end or like what the thing that ends up being is just a guy that lives in the walls of the house. Uh, and then, you know, the story... But I don't. I don't want to spoil oh, you just it. Like, spoiled well, it didn't you? I think this one. Isn't that the big reveal? No, no, no. no. It's a, that happens like. No, it happens at like the middle of the movie. All right, so it's uh, Parasite. But, but you're talking about uh, Parasite, then, is what you're saying. It's. It's kind of like that, but they're Australian <laughs> or New Zealand. They're New Zealand. New Zealand. Newsies. How do you call people from New Zealand? Newsies. The Disney film. Yeah. Christian Bale. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's number <laughs> five. It's one of them. So. Yeah, so uh, Housebound 2014, directed by Jared Johnstone. I don't know what else he's up to, but that movie is really funny and it's really well done, and uh, it's even kind of scary at points. Uh, so that's that. That's my number six. Cool. Six. Uh, my number six is Easy Rider, directed by Dennis Hopper. Uh, the problem with this movie is summarized right in its letterboxed synopsis, in which there are two different summaries of this movie that are very short. Uh, now, here's the one that's accurate to the movie, okay? A cross-country trip to sell drugs puts two hippie bikers on a collision course with small-town prejudices, which is correct. And uh, it's really not much more complicated than that. But here's what precedes that on the letterbox in all capitals. And this is like the image of the movie. A man went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Now, you show me that. I'm I'm gonna oh fuck I'm I'm gonna that's funny toss I was uh... toss the DVD out the window and assault whoever handed me that to watch. Uh, what were you saying? I thought you were gonna. I confused it with uh, Midnight Cowboy. No, it's like where's the AIDS? So then you know tries to find himself and then gets AIDS. <laughs> I was waiting for that bit. <laughs> AIDS was I, was AIDS what? Midnight Cowboy was 1960s. Was AIDS that? wasn't until the 70s, really. Which was the movie with the gay cowboy that gets AIDS? That, that's Midnight Dallas Buyers Club. No, no. That's the modern gay cowboy. Midnight Cowboys, John Voight and I... Dustin Hoffman. And John Voight is, uh, yeah. is a gay prostitute. But Dustin Hoffman is his pimp. And he's got an unspoken illness that they never really talk about. But he just kind of withers away. And it seems very AIDSy, but I don't know if AIDS was around yet. Maybe it was. Maybe AIDS was. I don't know. Sixty-nine. That's yeah. Mm, well, close. okay. Right. All right. Well, he had an, a weird illness that had no cure, and uh, was slowly killing his defense yep, system. Yes. So uh, his immune system was very down. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people theorize, I certainly don't. I think AIDS is a real thing. I'm not going to get into AIDS denial here. Some people think that AIDS is not real, that gay guys were just having too much fun in the 70s, and that's what killed their immune system. Too many uh, too many drugs, too much bear backing. You ever have a good bear backing right. on a popper? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I was nodding. No. I was nodding like I was remembering. It's just like, no. Yeah, remembering the 70s, <laughs> no, no, a good time no. for all. Uh, no, I cruising. Mid, yes, cruising, cruising. Uh, Midnight <laughs> Cowboy is a great film. That's another one I watched this year. It's not on the list though. 
anyhow, Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Easy Rider is Dennis Hopper yeah. and uh, Peter Fonda. And it's a a very... It, it's one of the first movies of its kind where somebody takes out money of their own to go shoot their own type of movie that couldn't have gotten made in a traditional system. This was John Cassavetti's MO, right? But Dennis Hopper executes this in a way that changes Hollywood like just immediately. This movie makes it a dent in the system just upon its release. And it winds up getting nominated for, I think a best screenplay Oscar. Jack Nicholson might've been nominated for best supporting actor and everything that I went into the movie expecting it to be, it wound up disproving uh, because the commercial image of this film is ridiculous and silly and boomerish and very, oh man, we're, we can, we're, we can change the world. We can save the country. Where's the American dream? Oh, the corporatist man, the capitalist really ruined, fucked up this country. I just going to, I'm going to go ride my bike in the mountains, in the desert. Well, that's, that's almost this movie. It's not this movie. This movie is, they're going to do that. Everybody's going to get violently fucking killed uh, when you least expect it, which is great. It's great for Easy Rider. Great for poor... Ja- I thought Jack Nicholson's going to steal the show. He's going to be in this movie till the end, cracking jokes, being charming. No, he gets fucking killed. He gets killed immediately. He's done. <laughs> so I really... Is it, is it like visually like graphic? Yeah. Yeah, it is. For the, top, for the time. Right? Especially for the time. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not like egregiously bloody, but it, it, it's violent. It's a violent movie. And um, Dennis Hopper did an impeccable job. The ending is a little weird, a little trippy. And it's one of the first movies to employ some kind of psychedelic montage of some kind because they're on drugs and they're at uh, some Louisiana festival. And uh, it just gets it, it gets very bizarre. And then it ends in an abrupt manner that feels probably true to reality. Um, so Easy Rider is my pick. And it is a terrific film, one of the most influential films of the 1960s and probably 20th century in general. And I'm glad I gave it a look this year. Cool. Sounds good. Uh, let's see. My list over here. So my number, what are we? Five? Number five. Number five is uh, George C. Scott's, I don't know if I would say finest performance but one of his finest hardcore. hell yeah hardcore uh, this is a movie that uh well mostly heard um reference in opie and anthony a lot because of that scene the scene you know where he finds his daughter or whatever but i never cared to look for it just because you know it's a funny clip that's not supposed to be funny but it's funny uh, but then uh, when I watched it, like, sure, that's, that's you know, an iconic scene or whatever. But his performance throughout the thing, it's so enjoyable that even though, you know, there's there's some uh, bad shit that happens in it. And, like, he deals with a lot of whatever. But, like, the setting, uh, the way that that world is, uh, which uh, I've spoken about at length in, in this show, how much I like that dirty, oldie time uh I don't know if it's New York or like that urban type of 70s thing where every everything seems unsafe and kind of dirty. Uh, and this works. I, well, I, I guess they're supposed to be in California, right? Because of the movies thing. 
uh, but it it works too, and 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 his performance and Peter Boyle's performance too is so great in this that uh, it just I, I had to include it uh, in here uh, mostly because I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. Peter Boyle's performance is very subdued and and well done. Yeah, and it it just goes to show how you could get away with like in the nineteen seventies just having a movie led by two bald fat guys. Yeah, well George C. Scott's got most of his hair, but he's got a bad receding hairline. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I uh, again, I was just not expecting. I, I thought it was going to be one of those movies where it's like, well, we got a, a funny clip out of this, and most of the movies kind of shit, but this scene is really good. Uh, but the movie that is around that scene is also great. Uh, so that's definitely why I, I added it as, as the fi- fifth on my list. Well, the subject that uh, matter of it makes it very dated where nobody's going to the porn theaters anymore and it's not made that way. But the conversation that occurs within that is so modern and to today. And they literally like spell it out about the differences between um, what drives the people in the Midwest, where we are introduced to George C. Scott's character and his ideal family life at the beginning with the Christmas photos and everything's nice and cozy and warm. And then the, the city, which, you know, you're supposed to go to, you're supposed to live in, and uh thrive and make a lot of money and be a successful person except yeah if you know you're getting involved in the deep end of things so hardcore is a great pick it's not in my top 10 because i had actually seen it prior to 2020 but uh terrific film i'm surprised it, it ranked that high for you number five for me is one that we watched together is roar roar is a movie i had heard of that i'd seen the trailer too and i thought it was an amusing concept and then when we were watching it during civic tv I I was in awe. I lost myself in awe to yeah. watching these people getting casually mauled by lions and tigers and almost getting stomped out by elephants. It is such a, a landmark achievement in filmmaking. It really I it's a, like it's a goofy meme film, right? But it's not. It's it's it, the fact that I, nobody died in this movie is the purest act of cinema that they accomplished what they set out to do. And it's a shame that the director <laughs> did not live to see it actually have life. Right. He died yeah. a couple of years I, before I have it hit. I have it as my fourth, just because I have not stopped telling people about it because I just want to watch the movie with them. Like this to me is one of those movies where you've at first you tell them what's going on or what they're about to watch. Just set it up just as, as like a, you know, everything that kind of looks real here is because it is. Uh, and then just enjoy their faces, I guess, just because I remember how horrified I was while watching it and how much anxiety I felt just knowing that this actually happened. Uh, and uh, I, I guess it, it has, it's a weird comparison, but it's kind of a, the same uh, appeal that Two Girls, One Cup had for me <laughs> in the odds, where it was like, I want to show this to everyone just so that I can see their reaction to it, not because it's some great masterpiece or whatever, just because of, you know, how enjoyable it would be to watch this with, you know, different people. Right, so which I, which I think makes was, it a, my a, a huge success as a film is that it offers varying forms of entertainment through it. Um, the Room is something like that. Watching The Room with people for the first time can be a real experience of its own where that's that's fun. That's the appeal of it. But yeah. I mean, it also goes to show how shockingly, even though it clearly they all look out of hand, but how well behaved 
all those lions and tigers were that they did not kill and eat somebody at any point. And the whole yeah. backstory to this movie is wild, is, cr- is just as crazy as the movie itself. The fact that they were living, they were living with all these yeah. creatures for a period of time. So the, the filmmaker who did Roar, uh, that's his family in the movie. Tippi Hedren was his wife. Those were his children, Melanie Griffith and um, the son whose name is escaping me at the mo- uh, moment. Uh, it was directed by Noel Marshall, took what, like four or seven years to complete, something like that. They wound up losing their home because they were addicted to collecting these lions. So a lion would like escape <laughs> from their mansion in, in wherever it was, uh, Palo Alto or somewhere, and go wander out into the neighborhood and they'd have to like bring him back in. And then eventually like a cop showed up and was like, listen, you can't, you, look, I, I signed up to me. You can't be doing this. You can't have lions going out into the neighborhood. So I'm going to have to call somebody and they're going to put the lion down unless you move these to a sanctuary. So then they moved their lion collection, which was, I think, like at five or six at the time. They just had five or six lions living with them. Uh, just, to, just a rich people shit, you know, just because they could. To a sanctuary not far, not far away. And they realized that they would be actually saving money if they just bought the sanctuary. And when they bought the sanctuary, that's when their collection got out of control. And they got hundreds, hundreds of these creatures living there. Uh, and they were living in trailers so they could have more lions and tigers. So d- during the, the filming of this movie, they constructed everything. And this was all mainly in California. The Africa stuff that we thought it's got to take place mainly in Africa. They probably did reshoots in California. Oh, shit. It I was, did not know that. Yeah, yes, okay. It was almost all <laughs> in California. And the Africa uh, segments were just establishing shots, essentially. Uh, Mativo, he was in California. He did not stick around at all between takes. He was gone. So uh yeah, fuck that. <laughs> he was the only real outside actor. Uh, so uh Noel Marshall is probably best known as uh one of the producers on The Exorcist. He thought, "All right, this is going to be my big payday. Uh I I sold my house to make this movie. It's going to work out for me." And then he never got a paycheck for The Exorcist. They fucking scammed him because it was only it was never in writing. His agreement and he's an agent too. He was an uh, agent to somebody at the time. It was never he was I think he was William Peter Blatty's agent. And he never made a written agreement with Peter Blatty that he would be a producer, but he's labeled as a producer. So it took years for him to get any sort of financial recoup from that movie. Um, and by the time this movie came out, it was like the end of his his marriage with Tippi Hedren. And it kind of, it didn't tear his family apart, but it was just like, this is more stress. I, I, mean, I really almost, deal with this. almost did. The, literally almost did. That scene with Melanie Griffith. <laughs> yes, yes. For her scalp. Yes. Yeah, the tiger is just like, oh, just like, oh, it's playing with her. It's like, no, it's fucking digging its nails into her skull. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's 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 definitely one that you can recommend to anyone. I don't think there's an odd audience for this unless you have too much anxiety and you can't watch something like this. But it's 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 very much a popcorn movie without meaning to be. I think. Yes, it was it was supposed to be a message film. It was supposed to have a goal yeah. where it's like, look at these wonderful, spe- uh, spectacular creatures. We have to save these creatures. And m- like three quarters of the way through the film, they eat two guys. And there's like a, yeah. there's an old violent lion who's like the antagonist or whatever, even though he's just scared away. He's clearly just yeah, tired yeah. <laughs> being forced. Like they're going to poke him with a broom or something to make him a little angry. Uh, so he seems more evil. But yeah, it's, it's funny that it ends with like that, that, 
message where it's like, donate to this. And all the proceeds were supposed to go to that. But it took years for this movie to actually make a mark. So. Well, because the way they, sh- they the way they edited it, right? Where the end is probably what happened at the beginning of them showing up where <laughs> everything is great and friendly and whatever. And then at the end of the actual movie where they've been chased by these lions and tigers and it ends with a happy ending all of a sudden just for no reason. Other than, I guess, the message that he was trying to. It's very cobbled together. Yeah. If it, like we, we watched the, the lion eat the two guys. That's not going to be convincing to the average person. Although, uh, you know, people have a soft spot for animals. So you still kind of go like, all right, I guess they were bad. You know, missing the but point. there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Roar. Well, that was my four. Yes. So I guess that we move on to your fourth one. Yeah, we we talked about Roar at length there, so I think that covers both of our our picks. This, I mean, Roar for me, that's what a movie should be. If a movie's trying to be a spectacle, you better put some people in front of some real lions. That's that's, that, that's <laughs> you better thing. you better be willing to almost kill your family for <laughs> no property at all. They, they were for, living, uh, they were some, living with those lions. For a message. For, yeah, they were living with it. The lions were part of the family. It was Mativo they were going to sacrifice. Anyway. uh, Missionary. Yes. Noel Marshall was an auteur. Uh, Straw Dogs is my number four, starring Dustin Hoffman. And it's it's a Sam Peckinpah film. Another movie that feels very relevant to to today. People trying to ignore outside threats, trying to craft themselves into the best, softest person that they can be based upon their immediate surroundings, like their family or their loved ones or their friends, thinking that this is the world and the world is actually much bigger than that. And there are people in the world that would do harm to you to advance their own goals. And Straw Dogs is about a man who moves out to like the Midlands or somewhere very rednecky for England with his English wife. And um, he is introduced to her old flame and his buddies who are these jokers who just love making fun of people, picking on people. They really run amok in the town. They're uh, bruisers. They hang out at the bar and Dustin Hoffman is Dustin Hoffman. He was like a five, four guy, nebbish <laughs> glasses. You know, yeah. he's not a threat at all. And he plays things very civil. I'm a civil man. I'm not going to get into a fight with you guys, even though, you know, you're my wife's ex-boyfriend. You're doing a lot of that the landscaping for us here you know you're doing the siding on my home i'm just going to kind of sit by and watch as you do all the hard labor in front of my wife and uh oh you want to take me on a hunting trip okay let's go on a hunting trip we're gonna we'll be friends oh you just killed my dog you killed my cat that's all right i'll just kind of pretend that that did not happen because it's not convenient to the life that i want to live i'll ignore all these problems until you know you're inside my wife violating my wife <laughs> so th- so is james martson a british man in this movie how why would you dare go <laughs> <laughs> right straw dogs is that straw dogs 2 or is that That's a remake just straw what dogs is it two. straw dogs 2 is a sequel <laughs> 40 years later with james what same they, story right they, uh they i think they for the remake that they did with James Marsden, James Woods, and uh, Skarsgård, who plays Randall Flagg on The Stand, your favorite <laughs> show. Uh, they set that in, like, Missouri or somewhere. It's just, like, which doesn't work. It doesn't work quite right. Yep. 
setting it in the American South in modern it's, day. That that doesn't work. It's just rednecks, I guess. Yeah, which is what do you what what is new about this? We just had a hundred films like this over the past thirty five years. No, thank you. Uh, so Straw Dogs, the original, his wife is, and this was this was uh, this was a very controversial film for the time because his wife is raped by not just her ex flame but his buddy he lets you know he does a tag team thing we're going to swap out midway through you can have your say with her too and then the third guy he's just going to be off in the woods i guess well um i saw what you did there i saw what you did there with the mute and the leg lift up disgusting very vulgar (laughs) stuff i'm very creative with my uh hiding farts i'm a very gussy boy boy. (laughs) well this all comes to a head in that she never tells um Dustin Hoffman's character about the rape. But here's what happens. There's a local retard in the town and he's played by a famous actor. I think like David Warner or somebody like that, or somebody who looks like David Warner. Um, Guy might've been in Titanic. I don't know. The name of the actor is not coming. I don't think it's, I don't think it's David Warner, but he's, Oh no, it is David Warner. Ha ha. I was right. So the the David Warner character rapes a girl and he plays a retarded guy. He's like the, the creepy pedal retard guy. And Dustin Hoffman, uh, accidentally hits him with his car right after he accidentally murders a girl who he was messing around with. And they're all looking for the David Warner uh, mentally challenged guy character. And Dustin Hoffman brings him home and uh, he's like, all right, I'm going to phone the police, but he's out in wherever he is. And the police aren't going to show up for quite a while. Well, those, those, those rascals, those boys from the local pub, hear about this and they all show up with their dad or whatever and uh they're gonna drag him out and they're gonna kill this guy and dustin hoffman decides you know i let my cat die i let them leave me in the woods unescorted by myself as a practical joke while they rape my wife but this guy nah this is where i draw a line in the sand they're not gonna they're not gonna boss me around this time and uh he he makes they're his... not gonna call me gay anymore <laughs> he makes his stand here and he brings out his shotgun and he has a real battle with these guys to keep the retarded pedo on his couch for the night and it turns his wife off and this and that and he's like no there's not gonna be violence in my home and it turns into kind of like a home alone situation where they're all trying to get the retarded guy and dustin hoffman and they're thrown in Molotov cocktails or what it, it it is a very compelling, great film about the nature of this world. I'll, I'll say that Sam Peckinpah uh, created a masterpiece with this movie. So that's okay. my number four. How about your number three? It's, it sounded good until the end. The end is that what makes it. It's, really... it's the ridiculousness that it took him yeah, this okay. long to grab his balls and, and act like a man and actually defend his property. It wasn't everything else. It wasn't getting bossed and bullied around. It was this this moment. This is what it culminated to. But he takes them all out. Spoilers, sorry. 40-year-old movie. He wins. Okay. Yeah. I I, I'll, I might check uh, James Martin's version <laughs> out. Who, who even directed that? That... What should be someone fucking good? I bet you uh, it is a familiar enough name. Like it'll be a guy who directed movies you've heard of. Rod Lurie? No. Rod. 
yeah, he he did. Um, he did nothing. Nothing but the truth. I don't know what that is. He did uh, a couple of episodes of Odyssey. I don't know what that is either. The Outpost. Have you heard of that? It's a war he, movie. Uh, uh, anyway. Yeah, he does not have an impressive career. So um, I I guess I was wrong. Yeah. Oh no no hold on. He did uh, the Last Castle. That was a big thing when it came out. Was it? Yeah, that was Robert Redford and James Gandolfini. Have you actually seen the remake? I have not, and I don't intend to watch it. Okay. Okay, so I will watch it, and, and we'll I'll do an episode back on it. So okay. let you know. Yeah. Yeah, you do the old one, and I'll do the new one. <laughs> we'll do a Straw Dogs double okay, feature so night. My, <laughs> my number three, uh, I wanted to pick a movie from this year. Uh, I don't think I have so far, right? Uh, anyway, uh, this is a movie that we saw. Well, hold on, hold on, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. If you pick a movie from 2020, then that's going to spoil what's number one on the 2020 list. Oh right, because mm. I wasn't doing this in order. I, 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 I don't have them in like order because by the best. And I didn't think about that until you started saying this is why this is my third one of the year, and I was like, all right, I should have probably ordered them by which one I like the most, but I didn't. So this is not in any in any order so it shouldn't affect it all right whatever uh, it'll it'll spoil whatever's in the next episode but who cares well it's actually it's actually not a movie that we did on our show it's a movie that i did on my spanish podcast it's called uh the devil all the time it's a netflix movie uh and yeah i know uh it stars tom holland wow and uh and batman boy the new boy what's his name how could i forget his uh, fucking Chris name O'Donnell. twilight no, Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Uh, Robert, it's it's uh, it's a very depressing movie about the South and the States and how everyone is a piece of shit, pretty much. Uh, you have a lot of characters that have really nothing to live for uh, and are tr- just trying to get by, but life just, you know, won't let them. Uh, and the couple of characters that are very interesting is one of them is uh, Robert Pattinson, who plays a, a preacher, like a, a Southern preacher. He he has like this distended belly. Uh, he's uh, he's very dis- like really disgusting, gross, like a, a creepy preacher would be. Uh, Tom Holland is our main character. Uh, he he has some type of uh, like daddy mommy issues that he was uh, uh, physically abused when he was a kid, and he saw a bunch of horrible shit. So he's kind of insecure and kind of a Napoleon complex type of thing because he's little. Uh, and then you also have. Uh, this couple of serial killers who's a couple uh, uh, and the, the girl is a prostitute whose brother is a cop. So all of these stories are all kind of happening at the same time in the same place, not, not necessarily related to each other, but I was really surprised by the performances first uh, because uh, usually when I see Tom Holland, I think of a little boy or a Spider-Man, right? And in this in this one, even though he, he does play a teenager or early twenties, I believe it a little bit more. Like he 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 uh he did a pretty good job as as performing as this kind of damaged character. Uh, Robert Pattinson is amazing in it. He's really really great. It's another one of those you know you're not really expecting much from him. I don't know why because he's consistently put up great performances, but I get that. That I guess that's that Twilight stigma doesn't just go away yet. But in this one, he he does what he was supposed to do with this character, which is just be disgusting, so that when the character is eventually killed, you want that to happen. 
Um, and then the story with the prostitute, uh, just to not spoil it in case anyone's interested in watching it, uh, the turn it takes at the end is really cool. So uh, that I was very surprised by that, uh, also because it's it's about two hours, I think, 2.10 or something like that, which usually not my favorite, but uh, it was definitely one that I would recommend and that it surprised me just because of having you know Tom Holland as the main actor, not really something that I would go for usually. But it's a, it, it's very depressing, very depressing and very hopeless uh, southern drama type of thing. Uh, that is one of the few Netflix films I've had interest in checking out. I haven't watched it yet, but I've heard nothing but I would say mainly positive things about it. Uh, the complaints that I have heard are, well, it feels like a Netflix film, you know, but not a not necessarily in a bad way. Just it fits into that particular mold of whatever that is that I don't think we fully right. identified just yet. Um, of, of what that trait might be that kind of gives it like a little aftertaste. Um, but I'm, I, I haven't watched that, so it won't be on my list. Uh, but it is one that I am open-minded to, I'll say, especially hearing now that it's that high up on your list. Um, number three for me is uh, Bong Joon-ho's second film, Memories of Murder. And this is essentially the Korean equivalent of something like Zodiac but maybe with more humor. Um, it's about a body being found in uh, not, not a ravine, but like a little sewer grate or something out in one of these uh, wheat fields. And it leads to an investigation into a series of murders. And um, they're, they're essentially hunting down a serial killer all this time. They have a lot of false leads and this and that get, getting in the way. And they're so desperate, so hungry to find this killer based on, I think a, a true story. And, um, you know, South Korea is known for having a lot of serial killers. Nobody commits any crime. Is it? Except serial killing. Yeah. Even today, there are serial it, killers. Is it the same the, the same actor that he uses for most things? Do you, you mean know, the, 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 the second dad? most famous Korean actor? Because they only have 30 actors in South oh, Korea. Yes. Uh, sure. Yeah. That guy. The, the guy with the hair like that. <laughs> I don't yes. know what his name is, obviously, but. Okay. All the all the best Korean so actors so, have doughy faces. Have you noticed this? Old boy, yeah, that yeah, guy, yeah. the other guy very, that kind of looks like him. Pudgy. Yes. Have you seen The Host by Bong Joon Ho? Ho. Yes. Ho. Bong Joon Ho. I did. Uh, yes. And I actually rewatched that after checking out Memories of Murder because I I was on a kick where I checked out that and Mother and his first film and then The Host and The Host is one that I've never liked. Really? Yes. The host get I, the host. I don't like for two reasons, and the main reason is the same reason why I don't really like Snowpiercer, and, and uh, why Okja didn't really do it for me. Is he tries to make an international appealing film, and then it just feels void of any character. Whereas when he does something that feels based in Korea, Korean actors, simple plot. He's not looking to a greater uh, or a broader market or uh, right. what, whatever, then it feels it feels more authentic. And I think it's usually a better story. I think that's why Parasite, uh, and this, this, this is something to the benefit of Parasite too, where it's like, do whatever's local and familiar to you. And then you can take that yeah. aspect of it that is universal and everyone can relate to that. Whereas if you do something like Snowpiercer, where you have Korean actors talking to French actors, talking to American actors, and everybody understands each other, then what are we doing here? 
you know, this, this isn't a movie freely for anybody at this point. Right. So that, that, that's my feeling on that. Uh, Memories of Murder is a highly stylized mystery film. Very funny. And again, I, I can't repeat it enough. It echoes Zodiac. So if you like David Fincher's Zodiac, check this out. It'll probably be your speed. And um, yeah, very, very good, very entertaining film. Number three for me. All right. Sounds good. Uh, number two is one that I, I actually, it's not very old. I think it's 20, I want to say 2014. Um, but it's one of my favorites. And I revisited it this year just because I showed it to a couple of people that, oh, 2010, that also really liked it. And it's just, uh, I'm currently writing a, you know, a, a project that we might work on and I'm, I'm getting a lot of uh, influence from this movie, just uh, the visual aspects of it and the way that they should violence and the way that they up. Um, it's called the um, fuck. How did I, uh, I saw the devil. I don't know why I just fucking blanked on that. I saw the devil. Have you seen it? The, the Korean film from 2010. Yes. Yes. That's a great movie. Okay. Yeah. That's that, that was one of my favorites when it came out just because of how fucking ruthless it is and how 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 great they tell that story. Like, everything that happens and just is closed up with a very nice and neat bow with no, you know, open endings or anything. But just the way that the whole persecution thing is is shot, the, the, the drama that happens between these two characters where one of them is obviously on top, but then that changes and, like, you don't really know if he's actually, you know, going to win at the end uh and then i guess you can you can think about if he actually did win or not at the end but visually speaking at least it's is uh very striking and it's very visually interesting the the angles the colors the decisions that the director made for this movie that even though it's 10 years old already uh it still feels fresh and new uh and it definitely holds up really well um so uh even though it's not a movie that i you know, it's been, it's been, it's definitely been a while since I've seen it. Uh, not 10 years, but uh, I'll, I'll have it at number two just because of how much I, I like it. And, and uh, I don't know if many people have seen it. I'm sure they have if they're into this type of movies, but just in case you haven't and before they remake it, because I think they're working on a remake, an American remake for it. No, that's been shut down. Uh, that was going to be Adam Winger. Oh, I said, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. good thing they, Shut that down uh, and just watch the original. Yeah, great. now we can all watch Kong vs. Godzilla on HBO Max in like four months. Uh, I saw The Devil's a fantastic movie. Uh, sounds like you got more out of it uh, this time around, revisiting it yeah. than on the initial viewing. That's another one that, again, when people talk about the great Korean films of the past, I mean, I, th I think Kore uh, South Korean cinema's uh, real, real uh, landmark period was probably like 2003 to maybe like 2009, 2010, maybe you could, you could, you could argue it's still going on right now because they're still making very good films, especially by comparison to a lot of the other foreign markets, including ours, uh, where it seems to be more, more, uh, more films being produced, uh, quantity over quality really with, uh, with the American yeah. or Western. Uh, yeah. I saw the devil is one that doesn't get brought up enough. It is a, a fun, violent, gory film. And it's smart. It's fun and gory yeah. and violent, and it's smart. And that's something that I 
respect about it because it, it's very easy to make that type of film and just make it brain dead, you know, make it silly. And well, and and it's not a movie that thinks of itself as, as being smart, right? Because I think a lot of a lot of movies suffer from that where. They believe their own hive, so they're like, "Hold on a second, you can't. You're not gonna believe what we're about to do." And then they come up with something that doesn't make any sense or doesn't fit at yes. all. In this, yeah, Aronofsky. In this one, there's mo- there's moments where the character is like almost celebrating or like being cocky or whatever, and you're just like, "It's a little, you know." Uh, and then something happens, or it's 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 very. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what else to say other than. Uh, the story is really, it's a revenge movie, right? So the story is really good. And the way that they deliver the relationship between the bad guy and the good guy or the, the guy that we have to believe is good. Uh, I you know can't think of many movies where you were able to play those two characters and like both of them almost equally, you know, to the point where at the end, you kind of have to decide which one of the two you're rooting for uh but uh yeah it's 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 great it's it's which, which is yeah i guess <laughs> and, if, you, if you you're more familiar than me but and that's something that i don't think is too common nowadays especially with a character i mean Choi min sick who is the antagonist of the film he's the the killer uh does such unrelenting acts of violence and he's not the only character that does he has serial killer friends you know that are really terrible as well that are kind of texas chainsaw yes. massacre but korean um and, right, right, right. The house. Yes. The big house. Yes. And and yeah. uh what he does to the the protagonist's wife is is terrible. And yet, because he's such a talented actor and he undergoes like so much yeah. torture uh throughout this movie, you do kind of wind up getting behind him somewhat. Even though you you fully understand you never ever are against the protagonist of the film, but you kind of you kind of want to side with the villain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because at times you can you can see his frustration, and, and like you said, he's such a good actor that there, he goes through so many emotions in this. Where at times you just feel his frustration, or, or how he's just like, like he just wants to get it over with because he's so tired of this other guy who just continues to follow him. But he delivers everything in such a way that you're kind of like, you, I know you're a piece of shit. I know I'm supposed to, you know, want you to die in the most horrible way possible, but I still kind of think you're okay, you know. You're still kind of a funny guy, and the way you're reacting to things is kind of interesting. Uh, and and uh, yeah, at the end, you don't really know which one of the two you want to to keep going, I guess. Uh, number two for me is a movie we hardly talked about on one of our rich perspectives, but one that. Uh, all right, so when we did the Paul Schrader retrospective, there was a movie that was not on no. your list, I don't think. Okay. You and I said nothing about it on the show. Robbie Goodwin and Nick Oldershaw were uh, waxing poetic about it for like 10 minutes. And I just kind of went, uh-huh, uh-huh. That was one of those movies I like crammed in there and had on the TV, but I wasn't actually, I was like working at the time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to, because when they said this movie was his best movie, I was like, oh, I fucked up. I fucked up here. All right, let me go revisit that. I've watched like six or seven times since. Uh, and there's two versions of it. There's an English version. Was it the Konishiwa? Yes, Konishiwa. Konishiwa. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's that's it. That's correct. Um, uh, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, Paul Schrader's 1985 
uh, classic about the life of Yukio Mishima. And it it's like no other biopic. So Yukio Mishima is, um, I'm not going to do a tremendous service to his, his, his life here in this summary, but he was kind of like a Renaissance man in Japan where um, he was a famous author. He was the most famous author for his time. It would be like before it's, it's kind of hard to give like a modern comparison because everything is so broken down into subcultures today that we don't have a real pop culture that everybody's like, yes, that's the, that's the thing that's cool right now. I think the last thing like that in the literary world in a real way, in a major way, it was probably JK Rowling. Uh, everybody was really behind JK Rowling in the late nineties and early aughts. She was like the big Hallmark, uh, Hallmark uh, pop culture author, very famous very wealthy, very accomplished. So think about that level of fame and apply that to Yukio Mishima, who wrote, uh, I, I think only four books or uh, I mean novels. Uh, he was an actor. He was a director. He did everything creative and uh, became a bodybuilder. And there's a bunch of uh, uh, photos of him that have since been like memed as of like 10 years ago, holding a sword and he's ripped and all this and that. And then he decided that was not enough, but that he was going to stage a coup in his own country. And so he, he created his own military and did this in a peaceful manner. He, he took over, I think what like the equivalent of a Capitol building might be and um, made an appeal for Japan to embrace more nationalist uh, tendencies to give power back to the emperor. And he got laughed at and yelled at by the crowd outside. He was on the roof preaching. There's video of this too. And it was a failure. I think he anticipated it was a failure. And then he went inside and committed seppuku. He, he took a blade, stuck it into his stomach. And then one of his nervous soldiers tried to behead him in the film. They don't actually show this. One guy did not deliver a final enough blow. So his head was just kind of like... You know, uh, like a hot dog uh, that you uh, chopped up for your your elderly like a, grandmother. You know, um, like a, a bad cartel video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody had to go and finish <laughs> the job for him, and you know, like a hangnail. It's just there. You know, you got to. Uh, so Mishima, uh, Mishima, in Japan anyway, this tainted his legacy. But what tainted his legacy even more than that? is the fact he loved cock. He was the biggest gayest man in Japan's history. And when this film came out, it got banned. It got banned, not because he tried to stage a coup, but because he he loved the men. He couldn't, he was the happiest he had ever been when he formed his military. He's all guy having dinner with all the oh, boys, boy. you know, getting yeah. ripped, checking out everybody's abs, inspecting it's, them, you know. It's harem. A little serious, yeah. man. Yep. So uh <laughs> what but that that's just the life of Mishima. The film illustrates his life through his body of work. And so a life in four chapters is they take segments of his novels that echo reality, his real life, because a lot of what he wrote seems to be autobiographical, um, but placed in a fictional sense, which is normal, I think, for anybody writing anything, right? Um, and they do that. They show who he was through his characters and offer little vignettes, little adaptations of his four books uh, that lead up to this conclusion of his life, the coup, committing seppuku. It is unlike any of Paul Schrader's other films. It is a visual spectacle 
produced by George Lucas. And I, I think Steven Spielberg might've even produced it as well. Uh, or Francis Ford Coppola uh, through Zoetrope. It is, uh, it, it's an amazing film. I, I just got the, uh, the Criterion version for, um, for Christmas. I was gifted it. And there's a English cut of the movie with narration from Roy Scheider from Jaws, who I guess is just like the narrator for the movie to try and appeal to an American audience. It was ignored at the Academy Awards in 1985, but I think it's probably it's probably one of the more enduring pieces of art in film from the 1980s. Really an impressive piece of work and not something I think you could easily place Paul Schrader as a director to, knowing what his body of work is typically like. So Mishima, Life okay. in Four Chapters, really, really impressive film. That's number two for me. Yeah, I, re- I remember... Uh wishing that was on the list that you gave me because <laughs> they made it they made it sound really cool and i was just oh oh yeah, yeah and no, you watched even, dominion know that existed. you watched prequel to the exorcist yep. instead yeah that's Doggy yeah that, that was on my that was a, that was on my list of worst from this year uh, <laughs> dying of the uh, my number one it's uh another one that i probably should have seen by now uh it's uh one that I don't think it gets mentioned as much as it should, just because of its quality and and uh, I guess the director has had kind of a decline lately, so maybe that's why. But uh, Thief by Michael Mann, nice. I had never seen this before, and uh, I don't think I ever liked. I mean, I like James Caan, like I've always liked him, but I I don't think he's ever been as or I've never seen him being as charismatic and as likable as he is in this movie. Uh, and uh, I, I, I guess it's just the, the the period of time that the, all of these movies have a, a feel to it. All of them have, have like a, a a weird touch of reality that is very difficult to mimic now with modern movies. Um, not entirely sure why, but this one feels very much like a well, it's a it's a heist movie. You know, just trying to steal a a diamond or whatever, but we go into his life and how much of a mess his life and how this would actually kind of fix it, or at least help him move forward or whatever. But it's such a small uh, kind of a character study thing where even though, you know, the, the, the stealing of the diamond, it's this big thing where he could get into a lot of trouble. Uh, He's doing all of this just because he wants to fix his life and, you know, move on with his shit, uh, which feels like very hopeless in the seventies, you know, uh, coming from a place of ignorance, I have no idea if it was hopeless or not, but that's the feeling that you get from this movie. Uh, and just the way that he delivered the performance and the way, even the way that it's shot, um, I, I, it really resonated with me and it, it made me wish I had made it, which I don't, I can't really say that about most movies, not because, mostly because I'm lazy, not because, you know, I couldn't see myself doing or liking something like that, but about the yeah. James Conn characters. I love that. He's a smart guy, but a stupid guy. Yeah. Like you, I think you grow up with a lot of uh, people like that when you're young uh, and you're just kind of like figuring out your life and you're about to move on. Like you probably went to school with these people where they're from the neighborhood where they have a certain type of like street smart skill set, but yeah. in like a conventional sense, they could never be successful based off of that. And he's like the perfect embodiment of that character in that movie where he's do he can do everything right to get to a place of like financial wealth and security and make those right moves. 
But then in the setting, like where we talked about it on the podcast, where he's at the orphanage trying to adopt a kid, he just doesn't have yeah. the communication skills it takes to be persuasive to somebody who would look at him as a thug and look at him, look down upon yeah. him as lower class, you know, where they can just detect it's like, this is not a good idea for a kid to go with this, this individual and his wife, you know? So yeah, he does an yeah. excellent job in that movie. And I can't think of a better uh, James Conn led film period. Well, that's the thing. I've always liked them. Uh, can't, can't really think of many movies led by him that I've, that I, at least that I can think of right now. Uh, but this one is definitely led by him. Uh, I, I, I'm not the biggest Michael Mann fan, as as we've known. If you listen to the episode that we did, but oh, Manhunter, I, I that, that's that, that blows me away. That this is your number one, but Manhunter, you couldn't you couldn't tolerate that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I guess this one isn't cheesy enough to bother me. Uh, uh, no, I'll I'll give you at that. least the point is... of Manhunter, but. The lines in this movie are, are not corny at all. And in Manhunter, there's a little bit of, you know, he would, he, he felt like he was doing Miami Vice a little too long. And that seeped into it in terms of dialogue. Right. Yeah. Well, that that's what I was about to ask you. I think at least from his, I'm looking at his IMDb right now, and that is possibly my favorite movie by him. And what I would say his best, confidently. Uh, I haven't seen Last of the Mohicans, but I can't imagine that being amazing. Uh, and uh, a lot of people yeah, say Ali. Heat is the the best Michael Mann film, and I think it's very good. But I don't think it's his best. Yeah, no, I would I would definitely take Thief above that one. So yeah, he peaked with his first movie. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, you haven't seen you haven't seen Black Hat with Chris Hemsworth yet, so you, you just you haven't right. you haven't watched them all. Don't get too ahead of yourself. Uh, number one for me is the 1970s, 1970, although it is 70s, John Cassavetes film, Husbands, starring Cassavetes, Peter Falk, and Ben Gazzara, which is, uh, it, it is my entry point for anything John Cassavetes, because I watched this and I was like, this movie is ridiculous. This movie is hilarious. Ben Gazzara's character is such a piece of shit to all these women. It's the funniest thing I've seen this year. Um, husbands is about, uh, four friends, but it's really three friends. And one of the friends dies and they're all middle-aged. They have their families and, and whatnot. They're all in their forties at different points in their life. And then you're like, this would be like if Jerry died or if Jake died, right? Uh, it affects Ben Gazar a little bit more than the other two. Although everybody's distraught, everybody's like really broken up about it. And they wind up just like staying up late and not going to sleep as a result of it and winding up uh, doing like several just mischievous things like going to a bar and getting extremely drunk and then harassing this old fat lady to sing and criticizing her and just yelling in her face. And then Peter Falk takes all his clothes off. It's a great time. Um, and then, so, so I guess just a movie you could never do now. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, I, I noticed a okay. lot of the cues of the movie, I don't know if you're familiar with Stella, the Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter. Who's the other guy? Who's the third guy? Uh, David Wayne. David Wayne. A lot of the cues for the Stella TV show seem to mimic the nature of husbands, where you have these three, okay. three middle-aged right. men who are acting out in certain ways uh, that don't seem 
common don't from, fit from that right age. you have a dentist john cassavetes is a dentist you don't really know much about peter fox character uh, as far as his career and then ben gazzara just works in like advertising or something uh and it, it, their lives just kind of spiral at a rapid pace temporarily after the death of this friend and it results in them treating people poorly making very selfish impulsive decisions and then it just ends in England. They just decide to go to England. And uh, this is after Ben Gazar beats up his wife and threatens to beat up her mom and chases after her mom. And they pull him out of there. They're like, you're acting, you're acting out of control, Ben. <laughs> Chill out, Ben. Um, anyway, there's a lot of misogyny in this film, if you couldn't tell. It's all Ben Gazar, though. But then they cheat on their wives overseas uh, and... Uh, it gets it gets it gets rough. I'm not doing this movie justice with my summary here. We should have ended with yours. Well, Steve. I don't. I uh, honestly like this is the I think third time that you've mentioned that movie, and the first time where I'm like, all right, I'll I'll check it out. <laughs> not because I don't, but be- not because I don't believe that it's it's funny, but just because for you to have it so high, you know, on your list. It's it's a movie that you every time you mention it, like you go on about it because of how much you liked it. So it's a it's a very I, fun movie. It's a fu- I, and it's also relatable I, to a point where it's like th- these guys are in their forties. They're forced to reconsider what their lives are at this point, and two thirds of them realize, oh no, my life is for me. Uh, I just got a little spooked for a second, and then go home to their families, even though they just had this wild week essentially. And then Ben Gazzara. Who's right. so I, I I walked away from this movie with a great appreciation for Ben Gazar as an actor because he's kind of got that Peter Boyle flavor to him, but he's just like more of a scumbag. He's more just like a shithead to people, and he's like that in every movie. Um, he, yeah, the, all three of these guys are great. This is, in my opinion, from what I've seen, I haven't seen Love Streams or uh, Cassavetti's final film, which isn't even really his film, but this is my favorite Cassavetti's film, and I think what his best probably is. All three of the actors do. Uh, terrific job in acting and uh it's just it's funny and i think an interesting snapshot of men specifically at that point in time where you just had like the feminist revolution or whatever night gay stuff in the 1960s and we're starting to move into a more modern day society away from that 1950s rugged man and right they're at the apex of that you know so it, I, I think it's a great film, an interesting film, very entertaining. And um, yeah, Husbands is number one for me. Cool. That was a little unexpected. I was not expecting to hear that one again, but I'm, I mean, it's on my queue already. So I'll, I'll definitely uh, get back to you if I, if I you're think gonna it's fall funny. Asleep I, I remember, you're like, going gonna to pass out 30 <laughs> minutes in. Dude, I fall asleep watching every movie yeah. if I'm laying down. So you're good. Uh, I remember liking Stella when it first came out before the comedians became unbearable. Uh, that was one of the, I guess my intro to comedy was kind of for that side. I've never liked improv, but alternative, I guess. Patton Oswalt, you know, Scott Ackerman, that whole group of people that I can't stand right now. Uh, Paul F. Tompkins. You Everybody know, who was hilarious uh, 10 years ago and is insufferable yeah. today. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michael Ian, Michael Ian Black. Michael, I think Michael Showalter is still like silly. Like he never got into anything serious. So he's just like a jokey guy. Like just he's silly, so he's fine. Michael Ian Black is on, insufferable now. So he's just just like David Cross and like all of these guys from the, from those days where now they're irrelevant. They can't come up with anything funny anymore. 
But at the time, like that was my intro. It's kind of embarrassing because Stella now, if you watch it, I'm sure it's probably not very funny, uh, especially after knowing that. But uh, that was how I, you know, got introduced to a lot of American comedy. So it's really something that I'll I'll enjoy and I'll I'll check back with you, let you know what I think. Because I, I I was me- meaning to check Casavetes movies because of that bookie movie that I really liked. The Chinese bookie one, but yeah, definitely add this one to the top of my list. Then his his body of work is uh, it, it's in its own category as far as how his films work and maneuver, and it does not they do not lend themselves to a modern viewer who has a short attention span and is used to you know being pummeled with very shortcuts. It's very dragged out scenes, very exploratory in terms of acting. Um, but Husbands, I think, is probably the most accessible of, of his films. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a great watch. So if you feel strongly about that movie, maybe we can do an episode on it at some point. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. I think Killing of a Chinese Bookie, we might do with Mario Cuomo. or We'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, anyway, that has been the, the 10 and 10 best watch films in 2020, not of 2020. It's getting late for you. So what do you want to do for this next episode? You want to break or you want to just like make it a really short one? What What are we doing now? The worst we've seen? Oh, no. In, in, uh, films of 2020. Oh, okay. Well, my list of that is like four movies. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Let's, so let's we'll, we'll, we'll turn this into like a 30, 30 minute episode. All right. Well, this has been movies for this week. Tune in on patreon.com slash Loris if you want to get this episode about the 10 best of 2020. Uh, immediately. Otherwise, you're going to have to wait a week if you're listening to the audio of this. Uh, All right. That has been Movies. Thank you for listening.